You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today to talk about Closed Casket, a novel publishing September 6th by William Morrow and featuring Hercule Poirot, is Sophie Hanna, the internationally best-selling author of psychological suspense novel who has published in 32 languages and 51 territories. In 2014, with the blessing of Agatha Christie's family and estate, Sophie published a new Hercule Poirot novel, The Monogram Murders, a bestseller in more than 15 countries. Sophie is the recipient of the Crime Thriller of the Year Award and has also published two short story collection and five poetry collections. She lives in Cambridge, England. Welcome, Sophie. Thank you. So I know how much regard you have for Agatha Christie. And it, I'm so curious as to why you would take on the challenge to, to extend this character and this world. So tell us, tell us about that. Uh, well, it would never have occurred to me to do it, to try and do it. Um, and in fact, the way it came about was uh, initially through my agent, um, who just had the idea. He was having a meeting with an editor at HarperCollins, and he's a very strange chap, my agent. He doesn't always pay attention in meetings. And he was sitting next to a shelf of Agatha Christie books. Um, and when he should have been talking about whatever he was talking about in the meeting... He was actually looking at the spines of, of many Agatha Christie novels and he just blurted out, I've got this author who's a huge Agatha Christie fan. Uh, you should get her to write a new prior novel. Uh, and this editor said to him, huh, well, you know, we'd we'd love to have someone write a new prior novel, but I don't think the family would ever hear of it. And then the very next day, that same editor had his regular monthly update meeting with the Christie family and estate. And they completely surprised him by saying, as soon as they walked into the meeting, you know, we've decided the time is now maybe right for doing what we never thought we'd do and asking someone to write a continuation Agatha Christie novel. Uh, And the editor was amazed and said, well, I had this rather bizarre agent in my office yesterday and he apparently has an author who's an obsessive Christie fan and maybe we should meet this author. And so very quickly... I was being asked if I wanted to go and meet the Christie family and might I be interested in writing a continuation novel. Um, And at that point, although obviously it was a daunting prospect and I thought, well, if this goes ahead, it would be a huge challenge and possibly a challenge that that only a a brave and foolhardy nutter would undertake. Uh, But you see, at that point, I didn't actually think it would happen. So it felt quite safe. I can go to a meeting. There's no way the Christie family is actually going to want me to do this. Even if they want to do it with somebody, they're bound to choose, you know, P.D. James or Lee Mm -hmm. Child or someone proper and eminent, not little old me. Um, So, no, I wasn't daunted. I just thought, this is all exciting and I'll I'll get to meet some Christie family members and how jolly. So I went along to this meeting, um, got on really well with Agatha's grandson, Matthew, and her great-grandson, James. And we all talked about Agatha Christie and I told them how much I loved her books and talked about which ones I liked best. And and I think they were um, fairly early on um, 
convinced that I was a genuine Christie obsessive. Um, and I left that meeting thinking, well, that was fun, but of course nothing will ever come of it. And it was a few months later when I got a phone call. Um, in fact, the phone call again came via my agent and he said, yes, I've had this call from the Christie estate and they want to know how soon you can write a Poirot novel. I said, what do you mean how soon? No one's asked me to write a Poirot That's novel. Funny. So why are they asking how soon? And he said, well, I think this must be their way of saying they want you to write a Poirot novel. Um, so at that point, you know, I'd had several months to think even though I didn't think it would happen right, but I thought, you couldn't help yourself I couldn't help myself and I thought I wonder what I wonder what yeah, case what would I do I would devise for Poirot you know it would have to be something really baffling that would be worthy of his little gray cells and of course by the time they actually asked me to do it I had an idea for a plot that I thought would work brilliantly for Poirot and and um yeah I just thought I'm gonna go for it and I also knew that the worst that could happen, you know, I thought I could write a good prior novel and I thought the worst that will happen is I'm wrong and I can't write a good prior novel and then the only person who everyone will think is an idiot is me but Agatha Christie won't be adversely affected. Everyone will just be reminded of how brilliant she is by me having been so rubbish and so since the risk was only to my reputation, um, I was, was willing to do it. It just seemed like a really exciting creative Challenge. You had to be brave, though. I, I, I think that that's, that that's hugely brave. I mean, I couldn't have done it for any other writer, though. Yeah. You know, it, it was only because it was Christie. And actually, the process of writing The Monogram Murders made me realize that all my other crime novels that I'd written up to that point, which on the surface were very different from Agatha Christie, you know, I write contemporary psychological thrillers, very different in tone from Christie's work. But I realized that actually I'd been writing according to the Christie blueprint of what a crime novel should be and do. So even though on the surface my books were very different from hers, I totally kind of internalised her yeah, set yeah. of priorities, yeah. how to tell a story, how to structure a mystery, how to misdirect the reader. And so in a way it felt like coming out of the closet. You know, I'd been secretly writing Agatha Christie-ish stories all this time without anyone noticing or commenting on it. And now I was officially allowed to write you know, a proper golden age mystery with Poirot as the detective. So tell us about Closed Casket. And I, I want to ask you, what would you say to a reader that says, OK, I, I could watch, you know, Netflix for a couple hours or, or read this novel? What would you tell them the basic plot line is and, and why they're going to find it so entertaining? Because I'm sure they are. Um, you know, if if it was somebody who also wanted to watch Netflix and maybe <laughs> maybe wanted to watch Netflix more, I'd probably just let them do that. Because I, I don't... Right, I but you, know, you know the gist yeah. of the story. So tell okay. us, please, set, set up the novel, please. Okay. And, you know, and the, the various characters. And then go ahead and, and give us a little bit of a selling line because this is you, what you've done, what you pretty much just said, was that you've written sort of a contemporary yet golden age, you know, murder mystery. So... Well, with Closed Casket, obviously this is my second Poirot novel. And when I wrote The Monogram Murders, the first one, I didn't know if I was going to be asked to do another one. Nobody had really thought beyond The Monogram Murders. We all had agreed to do this one book. And it was very possible that that would be the only Poirot novel that I would write, that the estate would want. Um, and then because The Monogram Murders was, was so sort of... It, it was just such a wonderful experience for all of us, really. I mean, it... It really did do what the family hoped it would, which was to kind of remind the whole world of how brilliant Agatha Christie is. And sales of her books have 
massively increased because people have right. sort of gone, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Christie and yeah. bought all the books again. Uh, so that was really nice. So we decided we did all want to do it again. I had had another plot idea in the immediate aftermath of Monogram Murders being published. I had an idea for a motive for murder that was just incredibly simple. Mm. And I could tell you what it is in four words. In fact, I could tell you four words right now. I'm not going to, because I'm going to be mysterious and cliffhangerish. But I could, if I wanted to, say four words to you, and you would get the con you would know the concept, the motive that forms the whole concept of closed casket. So therefore it's very, very simple, but it's also so unusual that no one would ever guess it, no mm. one would ever think of it, it hasn't been done before. Um, and I just thought, wow, this is a really Christie-ish idea. It's even Christie-isher or Christie-ish than the idea for the monogram murders. With the monogram murders, I had an idea that I thought was perfect for Poirot because it was kind of... Yeah, it was complex and complicated. ...hard to unravel. Yeah. Only he could rise to the challenge. But you couldn't summarise the concept of the monogram murders in four words in the way that this new idea could be summarised in four casket, words. Yeah. And I thought, this is absolutely amazing. This book can be, in a way, really linear, really straightforward, uncomplicated. It can be a murder some suspects, and nobody will ever guess what's going on, even though it's signalled all, all the way there. through. Yeah, all through the, the way book. through. And a lot of Christie's best and most successful books operate in that way. So Murder on the Orient Express and The Murder of Roger Ackroyd in particular are two books where I could say four words to somebody and they'd know the concept, they'd know the twist or the, the solution. Um, and I'd written... 12 crime novels by the by that point I'd never had a simple yet brilliant idea I'd had lots of ideas that I thought were brilliant and fairly complicated and fairly sort of labyrinthine and suddenly I'd been you know m magically given um, this amazingly simple idea and I thought great this would be perfect for another Poirot novel and I'll just sit quietly and wait if some wait until someone asks me to and write one, and so when they when the family came to me again and said, you know, do you by any chance fancy writing another one? I said yes, I do, and I've got the most perfect idea, and I still, you know, literally thank the Lord every day for giving me that idea well, because I don't think I will ever have another simple but brilliant idea again. I think I'll probably from now on have complicated ideas again. Well, this is my what in your background do you think sort of prepared you and allowed you to come up with so many ideas? Because it, it sounds like I talked to some writers and the hardest part is to mm. come up with basically the idea and the concept. So, But it sounds like these things occur to you, you know, as you're, as you're in the shower and gardening. And it's, what is your background that, that you think prepared you for that? Uh, I mean, it's true that real life does give me most of my ideas. And so even though, I mean, it's true of monogram murders, closed casket, even though that precise thing doesn't happen in my life, and obviously murders so far haven't happened in my life, something about observations of people and the way they behave in everyday life has given me, so far, all my plot ideas. And I think different writers find different things hard. So some writers I know really struggle with thinking of the next plot. I never really struggle with that. Yeah. I've got a million ideas. And what do you, um, you write them in a notebook? You put the notebook in the I've freezer? Got it on, I've got them on my laptop 
I've got them in notebooks. I've got several different places where I store them all. My problem is is having the time to do them in the way that I like to do. So in an ideal world, I like to have a couple of months to do a plan. Yeah, a very detailed, very detailed plan, scene by scene breakdown of the whole thing from start to finish. And I very rarely have the time to do that because I'll realise that the deadline is six oh. months away, so I have to sort of launch in without a proper plan. I mean, it always works out all right in the end. But that is my main issue, is always feeling as though there's just not enough time to do justice to the idea. But I've got a string of ideas, and you know, I have ideas that are very unusual. So I don't like to write about the kind of crimes that might happen every day. I don't like to write about people murdering each other to inherit some money. Right. That to me seems... Buy drugs or something. Yeah, yeah, buy drugs or, you know, because they're being blackmailed. Those seem to me to be motives that have been done and done and done. Um, so I, I like to write about really unusual, peculiar motives that would only come about in a very precise and particular sort of combination of circumstances, yeah. particular people involved. Um, so for those... And I, you know, I think it's because I've, I've met so many interesting, strange, slightly dysfunctional people and situations. It just seems as though if you write psychological thrillers about dysfunctional people, inspiration is everywhere because <laughs> so often, even just on a minor level you can have a dysfunctional interaction. I mean, just to give you a really random example that I've never written about, I was once sitting in my car, stationary, by the side, in a parking space, and a man drove past, pulled up in front of me, reversed into the space in front of me, and kept reversing and kept reversing and bashed into my car, then leapt out of his car and came round as if he wanted to talk to me. And I just thought, absolutely guaranteed he's wanting to apologize what else would he possibly have to say when he's just reversed into my car which was stationary oh no he wanted to yell at me for being parked in that place that he was about to reverse too far into and he absolutely thought he was in the right even though objectively he was clearly in the wrong and things like that happen all the time someone says something that makes no sense or does something that makes no sense and it's just all around. In fact, there's very few people who do entirely make sense. And so I just, you know, I'm so often finding that, you know, something happens and I think, hmm, if I, if I just took that a bit further, if I just added one more dimension or detail to that, then that would make a really good thriller. So you don't have to have read Monogram Murders to read Closed Casket, correct? Not at all. And and in fact, that's a really important feature of Agatha's books. You know, all her Poirot novels, all her Miss Marple novels, Poirot or Marple just appears again. You don't need to know where they've been. Yeah, you don't need to know any history. They are just there like a sort of superhero summoned up for the needs of the story. And each book is completely self-contained and self-sufficient. And so when writing Closed Casket, I absolutely made sure that anyone who hadn't read monogram murders or even any Agatha Poirot novels Perfect. could still enjoy it. So tell us a little bit about the characters and the plot of Closed Casket. Well, it's, uh, and again, this is in a, a strong Agatha tradition. It all takes place in a, a large mansion in the country. Um, so there's a kind of, it's not exactly a locked room mystery, but the murderer is has to be one of the people in this big house on the night of the murder. Um, So the house is called Lilyoke, and it is the country estate of a famous writer of children's books called Lady Athelinda Playford. 
and Lady Playford has invited various guests to spend a week with her in her country mansion. And the action begins when she summons, so everybody's there in the house, and she summons her lawyer, uh, a chap called Michael Gathercole. He's one of the party. She summons him to her study, and she says she wants him to make her a new will. And he's surprised about this because they only recently made her will and it was very straightforward, dividing everything between her two children. She says, no, I want to make a new will uh, and I want to disinherit both my children and I want to leave everything to my secretary, who is a young man called Joseph Scotcher. And her lawyer is, is visibly shocked by this and says, well, apart from the fact that you're disinheriting your children, which is a bit odd... I had I thought it was the case that Joseph Scotcher is in very poor health and, you know, not likely to last long. Um, and Lady Playford said, yes, that's quite true. Um, he's, you know, very, very ill and he's going to die within a matter of weeks. And so the lawyer says, well, sorry, then I don't understand. Do you have reason to believe that you are going to die even sooner? She says, oh, no, I'll last for years. I'm very robust and strong. Um, and the lawyer says, well, in that case, I don't understand. And she says, no, well, you're not meant to. And that's the first chapter. Uh, and then the next chapter is dinner. And Lady Playford announces this change to her will in front of everybody, including the ailing secretary, Joseph Scotcher, and the two disinherited children, and Poirot and his sidekick, Edward Catchpool, who's the narrator. And very shortly after that, somebody is murdered, but it's not the person anyone might expect. So so tell us about this sidekick character that, that you utilise and, of course, Christie utilised. Yes, well, well, most of Christie's Poirot novels are narrated by Poirot's sidekick, Hastings. Um, and when I was asked to write Poirot novels, I decided that I, I didn't want to write Hastings as, as my narrator because my books would inevitably have a, a different tone from Agatha Christie's different writing style. I wasn't planning to sort of copy her writing style. And so I thought, well, if I try to do Hastings, it won't feel like real Hastings. So I thought the most sensible way to approach this was to create a new sidekick for Poirot. Um, and that's Catchpole. So he's a, a, an inspector with Scotland Yard. And he, in different circumstances in, in the two novels, comes to be helping Poirot to solve the murder case. And I thought that was a fairly sensible and authentic way to do it because I thought, you know, anyone reading my Poirot novels thinking this feels a bit different from a Christie novel, there's a reason for that. It's a new character speaking, but it's a character who knows Poirot um, quite well. So the portrait, so Poirot remains familiar and stable and fixed, but then there's this new, new voice as well. And were there other devices that you felt that you should carry over for the comfort of Christie fans? I mean, not specific devices, but I did feel that... I, I did feel that my role, you know, just as Catchpool and Hastings are Poirot's sidekicks, I saw my role as to be Agatha's sidekick. You know, it's very similar. She is the great genius, and my role is to kind of draw attention to how great she is. Um, so... It was really important to me that all the things that readers would expect from an Agatha Christie Poirot, so that, that Poirot should be this familiar figure. I, I knew that I didn't want to change Poirot and have him suddenly behaving in a very different way um, or discovering 
stroke creating some new side to him that readers hadn't seen before in the Christie Poirots, I thought, you know, I have to stick to everything she created about Poirot, his world, and the kind of story he appears in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then where the newness and the invention came in was the constructing of the mystery for him to solve. So that was how I saw my role as Agatha's sidekick. Thought, you know, Poirot needs cases to solve. That's what he likes. Yeah. They need to be really baffling so no one else could solve them. And so I just set about, to do in each that. case, creating the most ingenious and puzzling case that I could for Poirot to solve. Now, what has the response been from both the general public and from your colleagues to taking on this role and publishing in this way? Um, the general public, my sense is that the response has been overwhelmingly positive. It's hard for me to tell them. I mean, there's only so many ways in which a writer can assess these things. One is the sort of press reviews. So I was very, very lucky with Monogram Murders. It had almost, without exception, amazing reviews. New York Times gave it a great review, Boston Globe, um... USA Today and in the UK, The Times, The Telegraph, Mm -hmm. all Mm -hmm. gave it rave reviews. There was one in The Guardian in the UK, which was a bit sniffy, but basically um, was overwhelmingly positive. And since it's come out, I've just had so many tweets and emails and letters from people saying they absolutely loved it. Um, There were a few people who disapproved of it. Yeah, and said and this, they would have this kind of, of thing anything. should never happen. Yeah. And there were a few people who said, this is so different, you know, this is much worse than Agatha Christie and therefore terrible and you shouldn't have done it. So obviously, you know, it's had its detractors, but I, I, I feel as though the reaction has been very positive because it's still selling really well now, sort of nearly two years after it came out. Um, and just the volume of mail and communications I get from people who've loved it um, makes me think that it's it's gone down well. But yes, with somebody like Christie, there will always be people. There'll be people who think, well, she's not as good as Agatha Christie. Well, I mean, which, of course, I agree with that. You know, I never thought I could. You know, that, that's the one great thing about doing continuation novels for Christie rather than anyone else, because, you know, there's not the chance of being as good at yeah, as her. So, so you can you just kind put of that relax. aside. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so um, there, there were, there's always that. And then there's the people who just disapprove of the continuation novel as a genre. Mm-hmm. They just and those people say things like, This is just a cynical money making exercise. Um and do and you have... however many times you tell them it isn't, and I mean it really wasn't for me. I would have done it for twenty quid and a bag of Maltesers. I was that excited by yeah. the prospect of writing a Poirot novel. Um money didn't really come into it. And and you know, for all my other books which don't feature Poirot I get paid quite a lot of money for those too. So, you know, yeah. it's it's not as simple as, as that. And I don't, I genuinely don't understand why people disapprove of continuation novels. I mean, I can see how if you love a particular writer, you might not want to read their character written by someone else. I can totally understand that. But I don't see that it's a kind of moral issue. And what I now say, if I if I occasionally get... I mean, actually, I haven't had any for well over a year. But when I used to get emails saying this is bad and wrong and you should not have yeah, done it, yeah, yeah. I always said, if I hadn't done it, then all the hundreds of thousands of people who've loved it wouldn't have been able to read it. Whereas since I did do it, you who don't want to read it needn't read it. So, yeah, right. you know, 
It seems um, fairly unambiguous to me that, you know, it's not it's not harming anyone. They can just ignore it yeah. if they don't want to read it. And what about your what about professional writers? Was it the same sort of mix of like responses or or was was it markedly different? Um, I would say a, a few a few crime writers read it and loved it and said so. A few very noticeably didn't say anything at all, and I suspected them of thinking she's done a kind of lowbrow. There's a kind of perception that the continuation novel is more lowbrow, interesting, than a novel where you've invented everything, everything. yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, definitely. It's kind of like you know, just in the way that you know, a Mills and Boone romance is seen as lower in the literary food chain than um, a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. I think that, you know, within the crime genre, continuation novels are regarded as a bit a bit sort of less worthy mm-hmm. than wholly original crime novels. So a few people pointedly didn't say anything. A few people sort of said, oh, you're brave. I'm not sure I'd, you know, take on Agatha. But then again, you know, that goes back to the thing. I wasn't taking her on as right. in saying, you know, I am the new her or I'm as good as her. I was literally just providing a case for Poirot to solve. And did did you conduct research in a way that was different from your other novels? Did you travel? Did you what did you do to prepare yourself? I mean, the, the process of doing the research was probably similar. So with each book I want to write, I think, what do I need to find out? Where do I need to go? Who do I need to speak to? That was all the same. The biggest difference was, I would say, probably 70%. No, maybe 50%. 50% of the research for the monogram murders and closed casket was just immersing myself in the world of Christie's Poirot. So just rereading the books many times. And, and then did you read any them. sort of criticism around no. those books, you know, scholarly response to those books at all or no? No, because whenever you read someone else's take on something, well, whenever I read someone else's take on something, even if it's like a review of a movie I've seen, I always think, well, they haven't said any of the important stuff and they've said a load of unimportant stuff. Yeah. So I, I prefer to just read Do the actual yourself. books yeah. and sort of just have a more direct relationship with them. So that was 50% of the research. And the other 50% was finding out whether things existed in 1929 or not. Because you don't sort of realise how much you take for granted. You know, you write a book set now, you know that everything exists because right. you're writing it now and all you know it's there. But in 1929, I have no idea. So, you know, I wanted Poirot and Catchpole to go up in the elevator in the hotel were there elevators right. in hotels then? Um, did everyone have a telephone? I wanted somebody to have a, a glass of sherry. That's very important to the plot of the monogram murders. I wanted it to be Harvey's Bristol Cream because that's my favourite sherry. But was that invented by 19... You know, so stuff like that. Um, and do you conduct was, all that yourself or do you have an assistant that helps you with stuff like that? Uh, I do now have an assistant, but I didn't then. So I did a lot of yeah. Googling of... When was sherry invented? (laughs) But luckily, you know, you type in any question on the internet and there are answers, you know. Uh, So I was very easily able to find out that there were elevators in hotels, that Harvey's Bristol Cream did exist, you know. So when you think about the comparison between the two, writing an original plot and, and continuing a character, what would you prefer to do next? Well, firstly, the... If you're continuing a character, then everything about 
the book you write will be original apart from that character. Um, and obviously the character will dictate the setting. So if I'm writing a Poirot novel, I know it has to be set before Poirot died. Um, but nevertheless, it doesn't feel any less like an original novel. Interesting, yeah. So, yeah because the that's story... That's one piece that's, yeah. The story, all the other characters, everything else is totally up to me to, to decide. I think I would feel differently if I did, for example, a modern reworking of, I don't know... Um, Ten Little Indians. Yeah. If someone said, write, write a version of, or even write a version of Murder on the Orient Express, but set now. Right. That, 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 that's interesting. Feel, so that's a completely different that exercise. Would not, that would yeah. feel less original because the story has already been right. told. But if I can invent the story, the mystery, the characters, then it feels as original as one of... Well, in fact, what it feels like is I'm writing a story about someone I know, with someone I know as a character, rather than I'm writing a story in which I've invented all the characters. Um, in terms of what I'd like to do next, it, it just depends on the idea. So now, these days, when I have an idea, I immediately think, is that a Poirot idea? Oh, interesting. Or is that a Simon Waterhouse idea? He's my contemporary detective. Or is it a standalone idea? Um, you know, um, uh, my latest non-Poirot novel is a standalone called A Game for All the Family, mm -hmm. which is a psychological thriller, contemporary um, but it doesn't have a series character in it, mine or Agatha's or anybody, because it just didn't need one. That mm -hmm. particular story is about a woman who has to save herself and her family from danger and the police are broadly sort of useless and don't help. Right. Um, well, so I didn't want any of my series characters, who are all brilliant, to be useless and unhelpful. So I thought, right, it can be a standalone novel. Well, we're so happy with the continuation of Poirot. And thank thank you, you very much for everything that you've done. And we've been talking about Closed Casket by Sophie Hanna, which is available wherever print books and e-books and audiobooks are sold. And stay tuned for an excerpt of the first chapter of Closed Casket. Chapter 1 a new will. Michael Gathercole stared at the closed door in front of him and tried to persuade himself that now was the moment to knock as the aged grandfather clock in the hall downstairs stuttered its announcement of the hour. Gathercole's instructions had been to present himself at four and four it was. He had stood here in this same spot on the wide first landing of Lilyoak many times in the past six years. Only once had he felt less at ease than he did today. On that occasion, he had been one of two men waiting, not alone as he was this afternoon. He still remembered every word of his conversation with the other man, when his preference would have been to recall none of it. Applying the self-discipline upon which he relied, he cast it from his mind. He had been warned that he would find this afternoon's meeting difficult. The warning had formed part of the summons, which was typical of his hostess. What I intend to say to you will come as a shock. Gathercole did not doubt it. The prior notice was no use to him, for it contained no information about what sort of preparation might be in order. 
His discomfort grew more pronounced when he consulted his pocket watch and noticed that by hesitating, and with all the taking out of the watch and putting it back in the waistcoat pocket and pulling it out once more to check, he had made himself late. It was already a minute after four o'clock. He knocked. Only one minute late. She would notice. Was there anything she did not notice? But with any luck she would not remark upon it. Do come in, Michael. Lady Athelinda Playford sounded as ebullient as ever. She was seventy years old, with a voice as strong and clear as a polished bell. Gathercole had never encountered her in sober spirits. There was always with her a cause for excitement, often such morsels as would alarm a conventional person. Lady Playford had a talent for extracting as much amusement from the inconsequential as from the controversial. Gathercole had admired her stories of happy children solving mysteries that confounded the local police since he had first discovered them as a lonely ten-year-old in a London orphanage. Six years ago, he had met their creator for the first time and found her as disarming and unpredictable as her books. He had never expected to go far in his chosen profession, but here he was, thanks to Athelinda Playford, still a relatively young man at thirty-six and a partner in a successful firm of solicitors, Gathercole and Rolfe. The notion that any profitable enterprise bore his name was still perplexing to Gathercole, even after a number of years. His loyalty to Lady Playford surpassed all other attachments he had formed in his life. But personal acquaintance with his favourite author had forced him to admit to himself that he preferred shocks and startling about turns to occur in the safely distant world of fiction, not in reality. Lady Playford, needless to say, did not share his preference. He started to open the door. Are you going to... Ah, there you are. Don't hover. Sit, sit. We'll get nowhere if we don't start. Gathercole sat. Hello, Michael. She smiled at him, and he had the strange sense he always had, as if her eyes had picked him up, turned him around, and put him down again. And now you must say, Hello, Athy. Go on, say it. After all this time, it ought to be a breeze. Not good afternoon, your ladyship. Not good day, Lady Playford. A plain, friendly, Hello, Athy. Is that too much to manage? Ha! She clapped her hands together. You look quite the hunted fox cub. You can't understand why you've been invited to stay for a week, can you? Or why Mr. Rolfe was invited too? Would the arrangements that Gathercole had put in place be sufficient to cover the absence of himself and Orville Rolfe? It was unheard of for both of them to be away from the office for five consecutive days. But Lady Playford was the firm's most illustrious client. No request from her could be refused. I dare say you are wondering if there will be other guests, Michael. We shall come to all of that, but I am still waiting for you to say hello. He had no choice. The greeting she demanded from him each time would never fall naturally from his lips. He was a man who liked to follow rules, and if there wasn't a rule forbidding a person of his background from addressing a dowager Viscountess, widow of the fifth Viscount Playford of Clonakilty, as Athy, then Gathercole fervently believed there ought to be. It was unfortunate, therefore, he said so to himself often, that Lady Playford 
for whom he would do anything, poured scorn on the rules at every turn, and derided those who obeyed them as dreary dry sticks. Hello, Athy. There we are. She spread out her arms in the manner of a woman inviting a man to leap into them, though Gathercol knew that was not her intention. Ordeal survived, you may relax. Not too much. We have uh, important matters to attend to. After we've discussed the bundle of the moment. It was Lady Playford's habit to describe the book she was in the middle of writing as the bundle. Her latest sat on the corner of the desk, and she threw a resentful glance in its direction. It looked to Gathercole less like a novel in progress and more like a whirlwind represented in paper. Creased pages with curled edges, corners pointing every which way. There was nothing in the least rectangular about it. Lady Playford hauled herself out of her armchair by the window. She never looked out, Gathercole had noticed. If there was a human being to inspect, Lady Playford did not waste time on nature. Her study offered the most magnificent views. The rose garden, and behind it a perfectly square lawn, at the centre of which was the angel statue that her husband Guy, the late Viscount Playford, had commissioned as a wedding anniversary gift to celebrate thirty years of marriage. Gathercole always looked at the statue and the lawn and the rose bushes when he visited, as well as at the grandfather clock in the hall and the bronze table lamp in the library with the leaded glass snail-shell shade. He made a point of doing so. He approved of the stability they seemed to offer. Things, by which Gathercole meant lifeless objects and not any more general state of affairs, rarely changed at Lilioke. Lady Playford's constant, meticulous scrutiny of every person that crossed her path meant that she paid little attention to anything that could not speak. In her study, the room she and Gathercole were in now, there were two books upside down in the large bookcase that stood against one wall. Shrimp Seddon and the Pearl Necklace and Shrimp Seddon and the Christmas Stocking. They had been upside down since Gathercole's first visit. Six years later, to see them righted would be disconcerting. No other author's books were permitted to reside upon those shelves, only Athelinda Playford's. Their spines brought some much-needed brightness into the wood-panelled room. Strips of red, blue, green, purple, orange. Colours designed to appeal to children, though even they were no match for Lady Playford's lustrous cloud of silver hair. She positioned herself directly in front of Gathico. I want to talk to you about my will, Michael, and to ask a favour of you. But first, how much do you imagine a child, an ordinary child, might know about surgical procedures to reshape a nose? Uh, a nose? Gathercole wished he could hear about the will first and the favour second. Both sounded important and were perhaps related. Lady Playford's testamentary arrangements had been in place for some time. All was as it should be. Could it be that she wanted to change something? Don't be exasperated, Michael. It's a perfectly simple question. After a bad motor car accident, or to correct a deformity, surgery to change the shape of the nose, would a child know about such a thing? Would he know its name? 
I don't know, I'm afraid. Do you know its name? Uh, a surgery, I should call it. Whether it's for the nose or any other part of the body. I suppose you might know the name without knowing you know it. That happens sometimes. Lady Playford frowned. Hmm. Let me ask you another question. You arrive at the offices of a firm that employs ten men and two women. You overhear a few of the men talking about one of the women. They refer to her as Rhino. Hardly gallant of them. Their manners are not your concern. A few moments later, the two ladies return from lunch. One of them is fine-boned, slender and mild in her temperament, but she has a rather peculiar face. No one knows what's wrong with it, but it somehow doesn't look quite right. The other is a mountain of a woman, twice my size at least. Lady Playford was of average height and plump, with downward slopes for shoulders that gave her a rather funnel-like appearance. What is more, she has a fierce look on her face. Now, which of the two women I've described would you guess to be Rhino? The large, fierce one, Gathercol replied at once. Excellent. You're wrong. In my story, Rhino turns out to be the slim girl with the strange facial features, because, you see, she's had her nose surgically reconstructed after an accident in a procedure that goes by the name of rhinoplasty. Ah, that I did not know, said Gathercole. But I fear children won't know the name, and that's who I'm writing for. If you haven't heard of rhinoplasty... Lady Playford sighed. I'm in two minds. I was so excited when I first thought of it, but then I started to worry. Is it a little too scientific to have the crux of the story revolving around a medical procedure? No one really thinks about surgeries unless they have to, after all, unless they're about to go into hospital themselves. Children don't think about such things, do they? I like the idea, said Gathico. You might... Emphasize that the slender lady has not merely a strange face, but a strange nose, to send your readers in the right direction. You could say early on in the story that she has a new nose, thanks to expert surgery, and you could have Shrimp somehow find out the name of the operation and let the reader see her surprise when she finds out. Shrimp Seddon was Lady Playford's ten-year-old fictional heroine, the leader of a gang of child detectives. So the reader sees the surprise, but not, at first, the discovery. Yes. And perhaps Shrimp could say to Podge, you'll never guess what it's called, and then be interrupted. And I can put in a chapter there about something else. Maybe the police stupidly arresting the wrong person, but even wronger than usual. Maybe even Shrimp's father or mother. So that anyone reading can go away and consult a doctor or an encyclopedia if they wish. Hmm. But I won't leave it too long before Shrimp reveals all. Yes. Michael, I knew I could rely on you. That's settled, then. Now, about my will. She returned to her chair by the window and arranged herself in it. I want you to make a new one for me. Gathercole was surprised. According to the terms of Lady Playford's existing will, her substantial estate was to be divided equally upon her death between her two surviving children, her daughter Claudia and her son Harry, the sixth Viscount Playford of Clonakilty. There had been a third child, Nicholas, but he had died young. I want to leave everything to my secretary, Joseph Scotcher. 
announced the clear-as-a-bell voice. Gathico sat forward in his chair. It was pointless to try to push the unwelcome words away. He had heard them and could not pretend otherwise. What act of vandalism was Lady Playford about to insist upon? She could not be in earnest. This was a trick. It had to be. Yes, Gathercoal saw what she was about. Get the frivolous part out of the way first. Rhino, rhinoplasty, all very clever and amusing. And then introduce the big caper as if it were a serious proposition. I'm in my right mind and entirely serious, Michael. I'd like you to do as I ask. Before dinner tonight, please. Why don't you make a start now? Lady Playford. Athy, she corrected him. If this is something else from your rhino story that you're trying out on me, sincerely it is not, Michael. I have never lied to you. I'm not lying now. I need you to draw me up a new will. Joseph Scotcher is to inherit everything. But what about your children? Claudia is about to marry a greater fortune than mine in the shape of Randall Kimpton. She will be perfectly all right. And Harry has a good head on his shoulders and a dependable, if innovating, wife. Poor Joseph needs what I have to give more than Claudia or Harry. I must appeal to you to think very carefully before... Michael, please don't make a cake of yourself. Lady Playford cut him off. Do you imagine the idea first occurred to me as you knocked at the door a few minutes ago? Or is it more likely that I have been ruminating on this for weeks or months? The careful thought you urge upon me has taken place, I assure you. Now, are you going to witness my new will, or must I call for Mr. Rolfe? So that was why Orville Rolfe had also been invited to Lilyoak, in case he, Gathercole, refused to do her bidding. There's another change I'd like to make to my will at the same time. The favour I mentioned, if you recall. To this part, you may say no if you wish, but I do hope you won't. At present, Claudia and Harry are named as my literary executors. That arrangement no longer suits me. I should be honoured if you, Michael, would agree to take on the role. To, to be your literary executor? He could scarcely credit it. For nearly a minute, he felt too overwhelmed to speak. No, but it was all wrong. What would Lady Playford's children have to say about it? He couldn't accept. Do Harry and Claudia know your intentions? He asked eventually. No, they will at dinner tonight. Joseph, too. At present, the only people who know are you and me. Has there been a conflict within the family of which I am unaware? Not at all, Lady Playford smiled. Harry, Claudia and I are the best of friends, until dinner tonight at least. I, uh, but you have known Joseph Scotcher a mere six years. You met him the day you met me. There is no need to tell me what I already know, Michael. Whereas your children... Additionally, my understanding was that Joseph Scotcher... Speak, dear man. Is Scotcher not seriously ill? Silently, Gathercole added, Do you no longer believe he will die before you? Athelinda Playford was not young, but she was full of vitality. 
It was hard to believe that anyone who relished life as she did might be deprived of it. Indeed, Joseph is very sick, she said. He grows weaker by the day, hence this unusual decision on my part. I have never said so before, but I trust you are aware that I adore Joseph. I love him like a son, as if he were my own flesh and blood. Gathercole felt a sudden tightness in his chest. Yes, he'd been aware. The difference between knowing a thing and having it confirmed was vast. It led to thoughts that were beneath him, which he fought to banish. Joseph tells me his doctors have said he has only weeks now to live. But then I'm afraid I'm quite baffled, said Gathercole. You wish to make a new will in favour of a man you know won't be around to make use of his inheritance. Nothing is ever known for certain in this world, Michael. And if Scotcher should succumb to his illness within weeks as you expect him to, uh, what then? Why, in that eventuality, we revert to the original plan. Harry and Claudia get half each. I must ask you something said Gathercull, in whom a painful anxiety had started to grow. Forgive the impertinence. Do you have any reason to believe that you too will die imminently? Me? Lady Playford laughed. I'm strong as an ox. I expect to chug on for years. Then Scotra will inherit nothing on your demise, being long dead himself, and the new will you are asking me to arrange will achieve nothing but to create discord between you and your children. On the contrary, my new will might cause something wonderful to happen. She said this with relish. Gathercole sighed. I'm afraid to say I'm still baffled. Of course you are, said Athelinda Playford. I knew you would be. Thank you for listening. This episode was edited by Kat Theck with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from the leading figures across books, culture, and the arts. All brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.